0: Previously on Storyological. <laughs> <laughs> Let's cheers in front of the mic like professionals.
1: This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories.
0: That we kind of like. <laughs> I'm Chris Camarude.
1: And I'm E.G. Kosh. So we're going to talk about The Killing Jar by Laurie Penny, which was in Terraform, which is part of Motherboard, which is part of Vice. I'm not 100% sure how they're all related Uh, And it came out in January 2016. It's the story of a young woman on an internship with a serial killer. She records his threatening YouTube videos, gives him advice on how to stay original, uh, and files all the paperwork with the Arts Council. So this is one of those stories that posits uh, an administration kind of burden on something fantastical or something horrible, and then, like kind of works through what that would actually mean.
0: Are you speaking of the genre of bureaucracy?
1: <laughs> I feel like that is a distinct trope, at least, if not a whole genre inside of okay. SFF. So in the in the story of this world, uh, serial murder as a fine art exists in this kind of grey legal area, where if you are creative and you make an artistic case for your work, you can actually get funding from the Arts Council.
0: Is, is the Arts Council a real thing?
1: The Arts Council is absolutely a real thing, and it doles out all of the funding that the government gives to any kind of arts foundations in the UK. And, um, I mean, I don't, I haven't worked with it or for it, but pretty much every, every bureaucracy, quango we used to call them, I believe they just get called NGOs now, quasi-autonomous, non-governmental orga- organization. When she is working for this kind of half-assed schlub Tony, who isn't really as good at his job being a serial killer as he thinks he is, and so she's kind of super unimpressed with him and his random acts of um, misogyny and just general awfulness.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like to me, part of the wonder of the story is that is the is the building of a monster is deserving as much of our pity as our horror. I felt like something that we've talked about before that that a lot of people just don't do as well as as the Brits cuz I was imagining Ricky Gervais in the role of the the serial killer who just couldn't quite grasp oh the God, art that of would the be thing. Perfect. It it reminded me of our conversation about British and US sitcoms. The mm. way that US sitcoms tend to feature people tend to feature people like in 30 Rock or Parks and Rec or our version of The Office that are good at their job and British sitcoms they, they to tend to,
1: to... who are not so good at, their We're not as good at their job. The way the character describes Tony is so despondent. And I think your comment about, uh, Ricky Gervais playing Tony is kind of perfect, right? It says, I feel a bit sorry for Tony. It's not that he's not a good serial killer. It's just that for various reasons, things haven't worked out for him and he hasn't achieved the sort of notoriety that someone with his skill set really deserves. And, you you read that and it could be a hundred percent neutral, but then you realize that that skill set is cutting off people's fingers, tasering people in the chest, wrapping them in plastic, and uh, not applying for arts funding because he gets his intern to do that.
0: There's there's such joy in in a perspective, well framed. I mean, this the the character, the mindset is all there. The the system is inside her brain, and that is the way she sees the world. And there's another paragraph that I really love that's like that too, where after they kill Mr. Harris on the wrong day, uh, she describes it in this way. It was a clean kill, and he had requested it after all, although it was a shame about us getting the day wrong. There's always a certain organic element of surprise that's lost, though, when the subject is too ready. The department do their best to sift out the perverts and weirdos. But a few months into this placement, one elderly couple were sitting in their front room with tea and biscuits laid out for Tony when we arrived.
1: So there are lots of reasons I picked this. I loved so much about it. But I guess, by at the core of it, what really made me adore it was how perfectly pitched her satire is. Uh, you know, she... Makes institutions and ideas look silly without ever being silly herself or in the text. She does it, you know, she never does anything less than take her premise absolutely 100% seriously. I've got a mm. list here of the ideas and institutions that she takes down in the story. So this is what she manages to get in inside of a story that never once makes you think it's anything but a lovely, entertaining. Well, lovely, horrific and entertaining story. Uh,
0: Another theme of our podcast, (laughs) stories of horrific entertainment.
1: That I find to be lovely.
0: (laughs) And and I find to be delightful romps.
1: (laughs) So she spears administration in general and applying for funding from the Arts Council specifically. The true true crime craze, uh, social media, the pervasive desire to be a celebrity... Uh, international aid failures, sexism, and ran.
0: Yeah, it's true. It, it, um, I wrote down uh, one of the things I want to talk about was the bureaucracy and art of murder because I love the the paperwork that seemed particularly onerous for the Brits as opposed to the Americans that apparently had this real entrepreneurial style where they just went out and were like, whatever, I got to kill some people. I'm going to make this awesome.
1: Right, we just make it as easy <laughs> as buying a gun. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that was, right. That was the yeah. Sense of it. yeah, I think that is that yeah, and, and that that is one of the 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 things that the story is pitched at is the particular difference between British and American systems. Mm. I thought yeah, it was a, it was a gorgeous depiction of the murderous nature of bureaucracy, the way that it hides blood between the pages and hides bodies in the system. There's a line, there's a couple of lines where it, that particular uh Spearing the word you use mm-hmm. that particular spearing of of bureaucracy in general really stuck out to me. one was the line where where he what is the serial killer's name tony where well, the the line where Tony says that it's not his problem that the paper, paperwork got mucked up. I almost said the cape work it's not his mm-hmm. problem the cape work got mucked up. that is a different satire uh and her line that she thinks the system ought to just work better, whereas hopefully we the reader reading the story are looking at this thinking, no, 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 no. You just you just need a different system. You need a different system other than one where the Arts Council is funding serial killers.
1: And I love how political that is, right? Yeah. And that is absolutely, from the little I know about Laurie Penny and her writing, absolutely what she pushes for all the time. Like, I first came across her when she was writing about the London riots in 2011. And she was the only person who was trying to empathize with... The way that uh, the way that people who were writing might be feeling, the reasons that it might be happening. Everybody else was just coming down on it as senseless acts of acts of violence, whereas she was actually trying to say, let's pick this apart, let's look at some of the reasons that might be causing this. Let's look at the shooting of Mark Duggan. Let's look at uh, the poverty. Let's look at the fact that you know people, a group of two thousand people marched to Parliament, and it didn't get in the news. But this is in the news now, so no wonder people are shouting.
0: You know, you're talking about one of the things that was satirizing was the the true crime craze. I thought it was particularly interesting that calling calling people serial murderer or serial murder, thought it was emphasizing, like she was deliberately emphasizing two of the, the big true crime things, the making of a murderer, the show on Netflix and serial, the podcast, that while it seems to have kicked off a craze, is just a thing that got popular. Making of a murderer was being done ten years ago, but it was interesting to me because it was also it was aimed at satirizing cop shows as well and other fictional crime shows. So it's not just aimed at true crime; it's aimed at all of the art of crime. And I was it made me think about the difference and the like. A show like Luther with a with a hard drinking mini personality disordered detective that is really interesting. Um, Luther and such shows are interested in making art out of crime. And Serial and a lot of the the other so-called true crime things are more interested in, it seems like, in making art out of the mysteries and not just crime of bureaucracy itself, um, which strikes me as a noble goal. And, and yet often, uh, well, I mean, where it can go wrong is when they get lost in making art out of the... I don't know carnival grotesquerie of of crime and murder, and that has actually affected people's lives. One one of the the things in her writing that I really love is is the details of the everyday mundane and the fantastic mundane. So I mean, like the details of things that we understand as mundane, kind of the the stained shirts that the woman is wearing the the preciousness of her chosen indulgences, the describing of how you you save money on food and clothing and whatever else you can skimp by on, but you pick one or two things to luxuriate in, which for this character is is good coffee or like the blood under her fingernails that just it, you know it feels mundane because it's like dirt under your fingernails, but it just tends towards a more fantastic grotesque thing, and then there are the the details that seem to be a mundane part of her life. And are delivered in the same way that stains on the shirt or luxuriating and coffee might be. But which are fantastic things like the the gathering of dead frogs or the murders of butterflies and killing jars that are delivered so beautifully.
1: That's exactly one of the quotes that I wanted to talk about because um, she kind of pulls that off in a very beautiful, elegant way. So she wakes up and she says, at first, I think it's some sort of fabric rustling in the wind. But it's butterflies, hundreds of them. They've been pinned to the wall, carefully, still alive, struggling slowly. And that, just the kind of the image of the rippling wings across the wall is amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the butterflies is this thing that keeps coming back because her, her flatmate, Mona, um, makes things with them. Oh, because she's a taxidermist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh And so you have this kind of -of matter-of-factness that that Chris was talking about before. He says, on Friday, Mona murders a butterfly at the breakfast table. Bam! Done.
0: That was one of my favorite scenes. And it was because, though, in in that moment, in that scene, the description leaps out of the mundane in a way that it doesn't at any other point. And I felt like that was... I felt like that was one of the moments of genius in the story where she's sort of limbing limbing the art of murder here, the art and soul of murder, in this scene with the killing of a butterfly, rather than in the scene from before with the murder of Mr. Anthony Harris. It's in this scene with the butterfly Mm -hmm. that we get a sense that this woman is a true artist of death. Uh, She is a person who Laurie describes as knowing where to cut to let the soul out. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, you have, to let, you have to know where to cut to let the soul out. So perfect, just mm-hmm. in itself as a line. Also, as a writer, I was just thinking, yes, you got to know how to get the pain out of people. You got to know where to cut to get the soul out. That's, that's what good storytelling is about. And that scene also reminded me of that, that thing you and I have talked about a lot in understanding comics, about Scott McCloud's theory, that the reason why a lot of comics tend to have more cartoonish characters than realistic characters is his belief that a more realistic character a reader tends to see as another person, and a more mm-hmm. cartoonish character a reader tends to see as themselves. And I thought, whether or not that was on Laurie's mind, I, I when I got to the butterfly scene, I was far more invested and moved and kind of horrified with the the joy they took in the death of this beautiful red butterfly yeah. than I was in the death of Mr. Uh, Mr. Harris. M- yeah. Mr. Harris. Yeah. And I thought, and see, yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I was so, I found it so troubling. In fact, that I was impressed and horrified at the same time. Cause it's, it's kind of awful, but it's just a butterfly. But she's making you feel it.
0: I, I wondered what what you made of the ending because absolutely the story is, is genius to me, and, and I love so much of it. And then when I read the ending, I thought, what What do I make of this? What do I make of this? I, you know, assumed pretty pretty early that she might kill kill Tony. And at one point, I thought, oh, maybe Mona could be a killer. You know, my brain is always working through kind of unconsciously where where an ending might be because it's partly how I I read I'm looking for significant things in the text anyway and that kind of and so that she so that she kills Tony at the end and takes his place it just it felt inevitable to me but not particularly surprising Mm. and and I I wondered what you know what it had cost her to kill Tony or what it had cost her to go through this story you know, what she had to... Was there anything that this character had to face in themselves? It Like, it made me think of, of Kill Bill. Very different story. But I remember that that final confrontation in Kill Bill is a much different kind of confrontation. And so what it costs her is learning that she has a child that's still alive and learning that Bill still loves her. And that kind of confrontation isn't going to happen in this story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yet, I still... When I got to the end, I wanted there to have been some something that that cost her that I wanted it to cost her something in some way or force her to look at herself or I want you to tell me what I missed and how you know what's there
1: for me what it cost her was her principles like her her Mona at the end killing Tony was her accepting that this is the system that we're in and not, you know, not doing what we said earlier, like, oh, no, we need a, a whole different system. But just saying, actually, fuck that. I can do this system better than Tony.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that, and that, I see that. I, I think that 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 does work really well, except for my, my slight. I, I, You know what it is? That does work really well. And maybe the reason why I didn't see it is she did such a good job of showing me a character that was really good and appreciative of killing things. Mm-hmm. That it didn't seem like such a such a leap or a fall for that character to buy into the system mm-hmm. but i but i totally I hear what you're saying you have the so much of the story is pitched subtly and not subtly at a question of of a broken system and a mm-hmm. desire for it to work better, and she's made an art you know if you imagine like a government worker that gets really good at their job that involves displacing you know, millions of people but making the economy work better. That's what this character has done. They've become the perfect bureaucrat, yeah, the artist. Yeah,
1: they've become the perfect cog in the perfect machine. And, and that is what's so damn terrifying about it because part of the appeal of the way our societies and our structures are set up is they are set up to reward us pursuing those those roles as cogs in the machine and they they give us the kind of you know tap the lever get your reward thank you very well done and so it's easy to to kind of get really good at tapping that lever and not look beyond that and think maybe there's maybe oh it looks like I'm in a cage maybe I could be elsewhere
0: Look for different levers, readers.
1: <laughs> look for the look for the exit to the cage.
0: My story for this week: the closest thing to animals by Sophia Samatar from Fireside Stories in 2015. So the story takes place in some sad future in which most, perhaps all of the U.S. is covered by a tent-like structure that, that blocks the actual sunlight and the actual starlight. No worries, we've set up some sun lamps. And we have some kind of strange dribble of lights that roll around the tent at night to kind of be like stars, but not exactly like stars. Because if they tried to make the stars look like stars, they wouldn't really look like stars and people would just be more depressed. That is what the study said.
1: It reminded me in that way of George Saunders' stories because it was full of, oh, the research says this, and the, you know, our attempts to better ourselves through whatever profession we've cho- chosen are moderately successful at best <laughs> and it, it just had that kind of um wry look at at the the structures that we build around ourselves that that George Saunders does so well
0: yeah i think that is a that is a particular a particular um in particular, tool in the toolbox when you're building a, a fantastical or absurd world that you can examine so well, the structures we make around ourselves, because you can kind of tear away everything that we've already built in this world. And then, you know, like a kid, like just sort of put back together other structures and see how it, how it affects things when you build them up again. Um, yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel like I don't, I don't want to just summarize the story. Like, I just want to get into it. How do you feel about that?
1: I'm okay with that. Okay. Because, you know, whenever I read a Sophia Samatel story the place that always pulls me in is the word choice, right? Her words are so hmm. perfectly chosen and she can, you just feel like she is in control of every element of it, of the pacing, of the ideas, of the characters. Yeah. And, yeah. Go
0: ahead. Oh yeah. I, I, I've written down some of my favorite collections of words from, from the story, not oh, in, not in general in life. Um, <laughs> she could frown at an empty chip bag for 15 minutes. Wow, that's terrible. Uh, A fresh and sparkling afternoon where childhood is everywhere magically dying.
1: The chip bag thing is the perfect partner to the sentence that I picked out. Um, Because not only can she describe something that is so slow, so meditative, but she can also describe the arc of an entire friendship in one sentence. So the narrator says about her friend... It seemed like she was only working there two weeks before she was quitting and blogging and suing and famous and not my friend anymore.
0: Oh, yeah, there's, there's a beautiful yearning for friendship in this story. We're going to come right back to that. Um, there were these uh, few sentences that I really loved where this story, you know, it exists in this world that we've set up. Uh, and, then, and then the story sort of drifts through, drifts through the, the narrator's life as she, she's made a possible new friend. Uh, a possible burgeoning artist on the scene and it sort of details their friendships and this story, it was, it was, it was just working and working and working. And then there were these few lines and I was like, ah, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And here are, here are those lines.
1: Yeah, I can okay. see what you're going to
0: read. and I uh, it. Riding the train home, I just cried and hated. This is such a good world for artists, but it's a terrible world for everybody else. It's terrible to live underneath a quarantine tent with no birds or wind if you can't find a way to make yourself immortal. What's the point of this experience if you can't turn it into something else, some sign? Are you just going to stand there and leak like a broken hourglass?
1: Mm-hmm. There was so much in this story that was about feeling inadequate, and feeling like you don't live up to the hopes that the world had for you, that you had for yourself. And one of the characters calls the narrator, you know, calls her out for being cardboard inside. And I just thought, oh, that is so accurate to those feelings of depression that kind of can wrap themselves around you. And then, in fact, you know, as I read further, I really felt like the tent itself and the quarantine was this was this big metaphor for depression and how it blurs everything in your life it it makes you unable to really feel or see or connect to people
0: exactly yeah you're you're living in a gray world that never turns as bright or as dark as it perhaps should and that yeah it's a perfect it's a perfect depiction of a, of a certain kind of depression where you're you're kind of going down deeper and deeper into the dark But you never manage to hit bottom. You never manage to hit a place where you can kind of bounce back from, Uh, which which is another image in the story where inside of convention center, they're like, let's go on the Disneyland ride. (laughs) The Disneyland ride just being you get in a cart and roll down like a dark hallway (laughs) and and you're supposed to be excited about a crash, but the crash never (laughs) comes. You just roll, roll, roll deeper and deeper into the dark. And you know, until the cart just runs out of steam and stops in the dark and that's where you are. And that,
1: and then your stomach keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. Your stomach keeps going.
0: Yeah. Your stomach keeps going deeper and deeper. It's a, to me that, that metaphor, yeah, it runs through everything. It runs through the beginning of the story when she's trying to make herself sick and then she finally kind of succeeds in making herself sick. It's right there when, when she's feeling bad, she calls her parents so that she can feel worse. It's like she's looking for that bottom and just not finding it. Mm. She's that, she's, she's, she's that image a kind of her
1: way to feel something, even if it's awful, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. She's looking for the brightness or the darkness. Mm-hmm. It's all gray that, yeah, that is, that is that feeling. And there was the, the other image of, of how envy was a baby clutched to her sternum, Whoa. like waiting for her body to explode so that it could come out. And then that one other line that, that, a character Nadia says, you know, that isn't something the narrator says, but Nadia says that she keeps imagining herself as a field going on waiting for winter. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just that, that moment where the field is just kind of stuck in fall mm-hmm. and it hasn't reached winter. It hasn't, it hasn't shed itself down to, you know, from, from the language of the story, it's like, it hasn't, it hasn't shed itself down to the kind of essential inessentialness of itself there's a a wonderful turn here of the idea of inessential where there's a sense that if you live in a world of such grayness Mm -hmm. if you live in a world where everything is gone there are no animals there are no plants Mm -hmm. like everything has to mean something because you're having to reimagine the world for yourself and that is so much work and I, i felt like the story really really it it hit that feeling that in in a world where where there's nothing left there there are only kind of two things there is there is whatever you make up and there is whatever you can share with someone else
1: in terms of the way it it comes at depression from this beautiful kind of metaphorical place it made me think of a couple of other stories that deal with with depression as well. So the first was Hyperbole and a Half, which is Ali Brosh's amazing webcomic, also uh, a book. Um, And the way she talks about depression and, you know, she describes it as feeling nothing. And then it escalates to not only did I not give a fuck, but I wasn't able to give a fuck. And that to me was the exact shade of cardboard that that Sophia describes in this story, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, one thing about yeah. the, the the way the story is written, there's this thing in, in a lot of stories I love that is in this story, which is where the plot kind of builds more or less linearly, but it feels like it's building like a dream because you're kind of drifting around in the timeline of the character so that what exists within the story seems to kind of exist across all of the time of of the life of the character. And I love that in part because I think that after absorbing so many stories in my life, it's rare that I can feel like as I read a story that I don't understand where it might go, but I'm still deeply in love with what's happening. And when you build a plot this way, where it's just sort of moving around in someone's life... You, you don't really give the reader the same kind of plot markers mm. to help them know how it will end. And Now, some people, this does not work for them because they get frustrated because they don't know where we're going or why we're going there.
1: For me, it takes a huge level of trust in the writer. So, you know, this author, I absolutely would, would follow her through 5,000 words to to figure that out because every paragraph and every sentence is written right, so right. deliciously.
0: I, yeah, yeah. Not not only deliciously. It seems to be those, those repeated images mm-hmm. might Bills seem like something. they they come to you after the fact, but they are with you during the fact. <laughs> if you're if you're if you're looking at, we saw the the film before sunrise um, a couple of nights ago, and I, in the same way, that film is progressing linearly, mm-hmm. but it is entirely a plot built on moment to moment transitions. So, while you might know that film is going towards a moment where those two characters are going to have to choose, it's very difficult to understand in the movie how they're going to get to that choice because you're just existing with them moment to moment.
1: And they are sharing themselves in this very erratic way that bounces around through their lives, you know, asking specific questions, telling specific stories, you know, bumping into people. It seems very non linear inside of this, you know clear, time based structure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I to get romantic on you a minute, Emma. It's like please do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there are some stories that you appreciate and, and some stories that you love. And then there they're just there are some stories that open your soul that help you see the world better or deeper or different. One of my favorite writers, um, Kevin Brockmeyer, said that's what his favorite part of reading and writing was, to feel like it could make you see the world new again. And that's what that's what Sophia's story did. It functioned like that for me. It gave me a sense of the essential and essentialities of the world. It gave me a sense of the art of being anything at all. I felt like this was a world more beautiful and more sad than our world. And yet in reading that world, I felt like it opened my eyes to like the memory that, no, 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 no. Our world is that beautiful and that sad. And maybe more so because really it's all we have.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about the other comic that this made me think of which was Robot Hugs uh, Nest which is a very simple four panel comic where one person says to the other what's wrong i don't know can i help i don't know and in the next panel i've built you i've built you a nest and then the second person gets into it mm. and he says does that help i think so are you ever getting out and he says i don't know and then the first person gets into the nest with him and they curl up together and it's this beautiful kind of description of this is what you can do when you can't do anything, which is just exist close to somebody else.
0: Yeah. I think that is a a perfect description of this story. And, uh, A good place to end it. Well, except that I'm really bad at ending things when I say I'm going to end them because then I immediately (laughs) think of something else. Um, No, I'm not even going to put this in before. I'm just going to say it right now, which is does feel like one of those stories that is just kind of magical. If you just look at it and think about what happens, Mm -hmm. it kind of...
1: It changes before your eyes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yet it is always entirely structured and built around what you've just described. It begins with a character that says... No one needs me, mm-hmm. and ends with a character forming a nest with someone else, feeling needed, and that's that's to me like the essential inessential because none of the people need each other,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but they need each other.
1: Readers, this has been Storyological. If we haven't talked about a story that you've loved recently, then let us know on Twitter. We are at Storyological.
0: That is story like the word story oh like the name of a damien rice album <laughs> and logical like spock
1: you can follow him on twitter at kuvals c-u-v-o-l-s
0: and you can follow her on twitter at eg kosh
1: you can find us online at storyological.com
0: and and you should find us there because we have a lot of show notes that we we put along with our shows that will further the discussion
1: all of the random asides and references that we make during the show we link to articles about
0: and of course uh, at our website you can subscribe to our lovely newsletter where you occasionally get pictures such as the picture that went out last week of edgar carrot's drawing of emma and i in a boat if you really really love us please maybe go on iTunes and leave a review. If you don't really love us, now is the time to be quiet.
1: (laughs) The reviews help other people find us, and we really love it when they do that. See you next time.
0: Happy reading. Because I have forgot the words and... I don't know the rhythm, but I am just keeping on. They are the head and the heart, that is the name of the band, and they just keep on singing the same song.